Welcome back to the conversation, everybody. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, this certainly has been a wild ride for those in the food and restaurant industry. Feast or famine is how Doug Harris of Food Gurus Hawaii and the Harris Agency best describes 2021. The latest index for August shows that business softened following a red-hot summer. The index tracks some 3 million transactions in the islands each month to try and understand the trends and the forces at play. Here's Doug. Things are starting to cool down after a crazy ramp up from January. You couldn't get into restaurants. It was so busy from June and July. And people were just, you know, not only with the restaurants dealing with labor shortages, but there was just uh, chain supply issues and they had customers waiting in lines. And I think it was all hands on deck for just a very strong summer. And then we saw the traditional seasonal adjustment for the end of summer going into back to school in July and August. And we're seeing that again in September. But I think that, you know, we're tracking, tracking versus last year doesn't make sense. So we've been tracking month over month. And I think the growth curve was so strong in July. I think, honestly, a lot of restaurants actually enjoyed the breather in August because they were just crazy busy. And then the breather continued into September. And I think what we're seeing now is people, you know, they're sort of moving to initiate transactions again. And you'll see value coming into more menus and more deals. Break it down for us, you know, island by island. What did you see in August? Overall, we saw sales down versus July. But I think that's to be expected. We, we saw them down about 4% statewide. And it was, it was what's interesting, too, where we saw very strong ticket growth in, in May, June, July. And then we saw the ticket ease off. So people were either spending this money or there was more value percentages in the transaction ratios. But we saw the ticket average fall 4%, which is the first time we've actually seen a ticket average fall all year, too. We've seen a steady increase as people have been taking price with um, chain supply costs lifting and uh, and other elements of it. So we've seen a lot. Pretty much, I would say, the majority of restaurants took price over the summer to uh, try to catch up with what was happening with the cost of supply, uh, cost raising. But the, the biggest dynamic when you're looking at ticket average is always going to be in the quick serve restaurants where the value is such a big part of the menu mix. So, yeah, they're a little bit more price sensitive than the dine-in, et cetera. With regards to the dine-in in August, of course, the biggest dynamic, there's been a lot of discussion about safe access, but I believe the biggest dynamic was actually the daily count of new cases. And I think what happened was that when it spiked in around the, above the 1,000 mark during August, I think a lot of people just self um, started isolating, staying, sheltering at home, and I think the numbers really rattled a lot of people that thought that we'd dealt with it. So there was a bit of confidence lost with regards to, you know, being socializing and definitely being an indoor environment. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have friends who just said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going back to ordering my groceries online. <laughs> yeah. You know what was interesting, too, for delivery? It, this has always been so crazy this year. It's just so interesting to watch, just even not even comparing it to last year, because last year was, was completely abnormal. Just looking at it within its own characteristics of what it's doing uh, this year, it's been, you know, it's been amazing. Everybody was so busy in June and July that delivery got shunned to the back of the consideration with regards to who's going to get um, fed first. 
And I think a lot of people just, a lot of restaurants were so busy with dine-in and take-out, they turned off their delivery service. And then, of course, with this resurgence, um, with the Delta variant, sentiment went crazy and delivery became, you know, delivery grew 30, 30%, 30%, 30%, 40% within 30 days. Wow. That was very, it was very, uh, oh, we don't need them. Oh, yes, we do. The vaccine cards, you know, the passports, I mean, that kicked in in September, you know, obviously, uh, uh, you know, then the the mainland tourists got the message. You know, the governor just said, "Yeah, now's not the time to come." So I imagine the September numbers will be even lower. That, that's true. No, September numbers are definitely trending down, and we're seeing um, overall sales. You know, in the double digits, so it's ten between ten and you know ten plus percent down on a previous month. There is there is a little bit. There's still a seasonal adjustment, and it's really hard to get an, an assessment of. Um, you know, what the accelerant was for those issues. But we definitely, you know, a lot of neighbor islands and the resorts areas, especially in Maui, which was enjoying uh, phenomenal business. You know, a lot of that slowed down, a lot of cancellations, a lot of groups. And and the other part of it was a lot of uh, the hotels, you know, quickly established food and beverage options at their own location as best they could. So, you know, more there was more options. Do you think the double-digit, drop will be, you know, pretty much most islands? Uh, yes. You know, I would definitely see double digits. I would see closer to the 20% in some of the um, resort areas. But I feel the other part of it is uh, what's going to happen. I think once restrictions are lifted, I think we're going to go through another boom. So it's almost, it's just so, uh, you know, it's so hard to predict. What I believe is the biggest indicator is the rise or the fall of the daily counts and what's driving sediment for customers. Right. So uh, as we start to see the numbers trend downward and hopefully the death count as well, that people won't be so scared. And, you know, now that you've got the boosters, you know, lots of different things playing in the mix and that you might get more people back out again. You might get more tourists come November, December. Yeah, I think so. When we were spiking in the high, in the high above a thousand, there was definitely a lot of concern. And I think what's interesting is then what's so hard to predict is that with customers, you know, we're okay about 300 now. You know, when it was rising above 1,000, we have a, a moving comfort zone <laughs> that is kind of driven on trends and overall numbers. And I think that's where the hard part is, is predicting uh, what's going to happen within customer trends. But I think travel's going to bounce back in a big way. So, as you said, feast or famine, and it's just yeah, kind of riding this roller coaster. I think um, you know dining's the hard hardest hardest hit with um, with regards to the uh, no, the rising numbers and the COVID fears. There's no question about that. Takeout, QSR, drive-through, all benefits, of course. Drive-through was chasing big numbers from last year too. When the, during COVID, were closed downs. Drive-throughs were thriving. So I think it's going to end strong as long as everything unless there's no more surprises. I t- I, t- I think um, it was very evident that when the restaurants were allowed to open again, and uh, even with spacing, etc., the people flocked to socialize. There's definitely a pinned-up demand, you know, on a residential level and a visitor level, I believe. If we are heading in the right direction, I think that I would be preparing for another boom. I, I feel that it's been a feast. I sum it up saying it's a mm-hmm. feast or famine kind of year. Yeah. Um, it's been the extremes, and um, I think... There's been so many factors that are impacted by the COVID situation and still coming back to the new normal. I, I, 
I think it's just part of the new normal. We just have to sort of shoulder stuff as it comes at us. But I think there's um, good times just around the corner. That was Doug Harris, CEO and founder of Food Gurus and the Harris Agency, tracking the trends in the restaurant industry. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Aloha International Piano Festival, live streaming the 2021 virtual Aloha International Piano Competition from the Hawaii Theater at noon this Saturday. AlohaPianoFestival.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years of serving Hawaii businesses and homeowners with a range of air conditioning and refrigeration products, supplies, and tools. CostcoHawaii.com. And thanks so much, Dabney and John. And, you know, as we continue to talk food today, have you heard about the new team cooking competition? It's on NBC's new streaming service, Peacock, featuring its siblings from Hawaii. It's hosted by pop star Megan Trainer and chef Marcus Samuelson. Take a listen to this clip from the Top Chef Family Style trailer. We searched the country to find the most talented young chefs from all over America. I want to open a restaurant before I'm 18. Culinary prodigies on the road to stardom. But they won't take this journey alone. They can bring a grandma, a mom, a dad, an auntie, an uncle. They're going to be up against the best kids in the country. So that voice that you heard at the top saying he wants to open a restaurant by the time he's 18 belongs to 15-year-old Kamawela native Ocean Kanikoa. Before appearing on national television, he was already making waves. In 2019, he was named Hawaii Food and Wine Festival's Keiki in the Kitchen champion and Hawaii Island Aloha Festival Poke champion. He is one of 13 young chefs competing on the show, teaming up with his sister, Jadine, and Kaneko has sat down with the conversations of Lillian Song recently to talk about the road to culinary stardom. And in case you plan to start watching, spoilers ahead. It's a beautiful family dynamic, and I think that's what this season is all about, getting young chefs into the kitchen and having a family member there to support. And Ocean, that 15, how is it that you are so mature in your bearing? How did you know that food was your career, your future? It started from a young age. I've always been with my dad. He's always been an inspiration to me. And he always brought me into the kitchen. And then not just the kitchen, but collecting our own food, foraging around Hawaii, whether it be fishing or going to farms, just being around food in general. And then having that experience, it all led back to the kitchen for me. And then more recently, in the past year, I really got into cooking throughout the pandemic and making recipes. So once I had the opportunity to go on Top Chef Family Style, I knew it was something that I wanted to do to be able to push myself and then also just have a little more fun cooking. Hmm. Well, Jadine, I'm curious. As far as being chosen as the family support, was there an auditioning process for Ocean to choose you to join the show? (laughs) I will be quite honest. I was Ocean's, probably his last pick for the family member to join him for Top Chef Family Style. Originally, he had wanted my dad to do the competition with him, but my dad being an executive chef, and that was way too much experience, and so he had to kind of go down his list of family members, and after a few more options that couldn't do it, finally, I was the one who who got put up on that list. 
you know, Ocean was very skeptical in the beginning of having me as his partner for Top Chef Family Style, but hopefully in the end he sees that it really paid off to have his big sister. Well, Ocean, I know under your belt you already have several awards. What was it like competing on the national stage, being in the spotlight in front of TV cameras? So being in Hawaii and competing is one thing. It's really cool to get to do these local events. But this was a national competition. So it was a lot different because this is not just all the talent from around Hawaii. This is talent from across the nation. So there's a lot more pressure for me. And I just thought that I was this kid from Hawaii, didn't know too much. But getting to go up there and compete, that was a different experience. And I'm really glad that I got to do it because it showed me that I have what it takes to be able to go out there and pursue cooking at this level. Hmm. And, you know, one of the biggest things on the show is the clock. You're on the edge of your seat. You're seeing the clock count down. People are calling <laughs> out times. And this adds to the tension and suspense of each episode. So for Team Kanekoa, who manages the clock? <laughs> Clockwise, I'll give Jadine this one. She did a lot more managing for me. We, I would actually talk it out with her beforehand. Before we even started cooking, we would talk everything out with each other to make sure that we would have enough time and that we weren't scrambling and that we weren't just going to get all flustered by the clock. And we tried to keep it as calm as possible, even when we could see that the time was running out. Yeah, I think that's the one thing about these these competitions is that it is truly you and your team against the clock the entire time, and that clock doesn't stop for anything. So I let Ocean do his thing. He cooked. He put his flavors into all of the dishes, and it was pretty much my job to manage the time and to keep an eye on that clock to make sure we always had food on the plate at the end of the time. And they're always beautifully plated. I'm sure everybody has their most adrenaline rush moment. I mean, one of the highlights for me as a viewer was seeing how you handled the poached egg quick fire challenge. Oh, so to me, Top Chef was all about thinking on your feet. So we had all of our ingredients lined up, time's running out, and we just got to get something onto the plate. So we're getting everything plated up nicely. We're putting our poached eggs on top. And I think it was the last egg that we had to put on top. We placed it on top of the bread, and it ended up breaking. So just so that it doesn't look like a mistake and almost looked like it was on purpose, we ended up breaking all of the egg yolks, making all of our plates look the same, and it worked out for us. Yeah, to add on to what Ocean said, a lot of this competition was thinking on your feet and having to pivot at the last moment. So when we saw that that one egg yolk broke, everything you think goes down the drain in in that moment and you're like oh no we've lost this challenge but ocean was just brilliant in that moment and went ahead and he poked all the egg yolks made sure they all looked cracked on the plate and we actually got praised for thinking so creatively and ocean thinking on his feet to really rename the dish rethink the concept of our dish and embracing a mistake and turning it into something beautiful instead Wow. So it's, I have to say, these reality shows, they will suck you uh-huh. in. <laughs> I can't wait for the next episode. Do you guys have, like, viewing parties? What has it been like being back home and having this <laughs> show airing? So being back home and watching this show, it's a different experience because, of course, now I'm surrounded with my family and we're all going through the experience another time. So getting to watch it, it's really nice. And what I like to do is recreate the dish that we made on the show. So while we're watching it, we're eating the dish that I made. 
Yeah, so new episodes air every Thursday, and every Thursday night we'll have immediate family come over. Ocean will always cook what we prepared in the show. And it's just a nice time to sit with our family and truly enjoy. And they had no clue what was going on the entire time that we were in this competition. So to see them get to see what we did and what we experienced, it's really fun. And it's also fun for Ocean and I to relive and, you know, just thinking back on all those moments where we had to think on our feet in the kitchen. Oh, that's such a beautiful thing as family for you guys to experience. So you guys have a viewing party and then Ocean's in the kitchen recreating <laughs> those dishes that everybody's seeing on television. So Ocean, up to this point, which dish are you most proud of so far? It's got to be the first dish that we made for an elimination challenge, which was our Hawaiian luau plate, because that's a dish we ended up winning the challenge with. But the bigger part than winning to me was that we got to win with Hawaiian food and not just like local inspired food, an actual Hawaiian dish. So getting to take that onto the main stage and show off our local cuisine and getting to represent Hawaii, myself and what I come from, that was by far my favorite dish so far. And Jadine, kudos to you for insisting on the mesquite. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes. That was a big moment, and as everyone from Hawaii knows, you can't make kalua pig without the kiawe or the mesquite wood. So, you know, I think that was a moment that truly defined my place in the kitchen because I had to fight a little with ocean, but in the end, I think it paid off, and it stayed true to our roots and how we truly cook our culture here in Hawaii. One of my other favorite dishes that I'm proud of is when we did the tailgate plant-based challenge and we created the beet nachos and that was just we had to be totally on our feet because that was 100 percent plant-based it was outdoors it was using grills and at the same time a pattern you'll see with ocean and i is that we try to always stay true to who we are and our local cuisine so being able to make a poke that was plant-based that was outdoors in the heat and all of these things combined that was one of my proudest moments as well and to see that the judges truly enjoyed it that was just a cherry on top for us and the whole state is behind you guys so happy whenever I hear the wonderful comments that you guys are able to garner from the judges. It's like you guys are doing so well, so we're so proud of you. Congratulations Thank on you. Top Chef for shining so brightly and representing Hawaii so well on the national stage. Yeah, I mean, I think we just want to say to everyone in Hawaii who has been so supportive. We hear, you know, we see things on social media. We get phone calls and messages and people just supporting us every week throughout this journey. And there's more great things to come with Top Chef Family Style. So we can't wait for Hawaii to see this and the world to see this and hopefully make you proud. And filming wrapped up earlier this year, and Ocean is back in school, hanging out with his friends, living a normal teen life, and still spending a lot of time cooking. Older sister Jadine is back to work full-time and admits she cooks a lot more now than she did before the show. You can follow the Kanekos as they compete for the $50,000 prize on Top Chef Family Style Thursday evenings on Peacock. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now, on view now, honolulumuseum.org. Have you ever seen our endemic coup? 
well, it can be found in wetlands throughout the Hawaiian Islands, but despite its widespread territory, its small population numbers can make this bird hard to find. We've got its calls for you today, courtesy of the Macaulay Library at Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii's Patrick Hart with today's Manu Minute. Ale ke'o ke'o, or Hawaiian coots, are water birds that are found on all the main Hawaiian islands except Kaho'olawe, and are endemic to Hawaii, meaning that they're found nowhere else in the world. They're also considered to be endangered, with less than 2,000 individuals left. About the size of a small duck, both male and female ale ke'o ke'o are mostly black, with white bills and a prominent bright white shield above their bill. Unlike ducks, their toes are lobed instead of webbed, which allows them to better walk on land. Hawaiian coots are mainly found in coastal wetland areas, kalo fields, and aquaculture ponds where they eat a variety of aquatic plants, shellfish, and fish. In Hawaiian mythology, alai ke'okeo are known for their chattiness and harsh warning cries. Alai ke'okeo have a really interesting nesting behavior where they often construct floating nests out of aquatic vegetation. This allows them to avoid many introduced mammalian predators such as dogs, cats, rats, and mongoose. A recent paper from a UH Manoa graduate student showed that predicted sea level rise from global warming will cause a significant reduction in their nesting and foraging habitat. However, this could be offset and even reversed if traditional indigenous farming techniques, such as the maintenance of lo'i for kalo, are expanded into former agricultural wetlands. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friends of well, you know, joining us for our reality check segment is Kirsten Downey. The demand for healthcare workers isn't going away, and the pandemic certainly has put the nursing shortage in sharp focus. Good morning. Aloha, Catherine. You know, you started your story out with a quote from the governor at a recent news conference where he was explaining his, uh, I guess his, uh, I guess, how would you say it, the... Uh, the decision to extend the emergency. Yes, you know, and it's because, yes. you know, he says we don't have enough nurses here. That's right. We just don't have enough health workers. Right now we've been depending on the 650 contract nurses that were brought in by by the federal government to help us with the crisis. But what nurses are telling me this week is that we really had an underlying nurse shortage even before this happened, and that COVID just sort of brought this into sharp relief. In fact, COVID made the situation in Hawaii worse because about 5,000 nurses have left the field in the past two years. Um, those, that's, uh, those, that number comes from uh, the, Department, the State Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, which issues nurse licenses. Um, and the question is, you know, of course, we've all been speculating. We knew nurses were under a lot of stress. It was schools closed. They had child care issues. There was the risk from COVID the stress, and we had an aging nurse workforce, so a lot were ready to retire anyway. Um, but what we've learned now is that we, as we come out of the COVID crisis, in fact, our nurse shortage is even worse than when we went in. Uh, 
And you've had a number of uh, nursing instructors, faculty, uh, retire as well. So that's not, uh, a, you know, a good uh, sense of, of, you know, what's happening with the schools, with the nursing schools. Uh, basically, what we've got is a problem in the nursing pipeline. We need to have our nursing schools better funded so that we can graduate more local trained nurses. Um, in, even this year, for example, in the face of this terrible crisis, and with a really great awareness of uh, the shortfalls that we were having in our health industry, um, there were uh, only 600 students accepted to get into nursing school throughout the state, although we had 1,400 qualified applicants. So in other words, 800 people were turned away who wanted to be nurses in the face of a declining workforce. And this is really something that we need to focus on turning around. Yeah, I mean, that's One that's stunning. Been, yes. <laughs> The numbers yeah, are just yeah. stunning when you think that they don't have enough faculty. They they could certainly, uh, um, you know, accept more students. But like you said, it's a pipeline issue. That's right. Well, people are trying to work on it. Um, the hospitals and nursing schools and the state are trying to focus collaboratively, collaboratively on ways to fix it. But it's clear we've got a lot of catch-up to do, and there's going to have to be a lot more focus and attention on the need to get more local kids into these nursing programs, graduate successful students who can take care of us when disasters and pandemics arrive. And we did talk to some uh, nurses who graduated from the programs here who were having a difficult time, uh, you know, getting jobs in the hospitals because there just weren't enough and they were having to go off to the mainland. But I was kind of shocked to read in your story that uh, one program, a lot of their their, uh, cohorts got hired away on the mainland. Yeah, during the recent years when none of our local hospitals were hiring our our new young graduates, hospitals from the mainland came in and swept them up, and at least 10 from Hawaii Pacific University in the year 2019 have become registered nurses in Tacoma and just stayed there and never came back. If we had even 10 of them back, every bit could help. Yeah, and to think that we just, you know, brought in 650 uh, nurses, traveling nurses, I mean, it is definitely a wake-up call. Yes, it is. Thank you so much, Kirsten. Thank you. And you can find Kirsten Drowney's stories on HonoluluCivilBeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kahala Market by Foodland, offering new food experiences and locally sourced and Hawaii-made products, providing everyday grocery needs and grab-and-go cuisine. KahalaMKT.com. You know, throughout the year, we're always looking to shine a light on little-known parts of Hawaii's past. You may not think of it, but our state has a long and storied relationship with beer. A book published this year, Hawaii Beer, A History of Brewing in Paradise, tracks the timeline from the very first beer brewed in the islands in 1778 all the way to the to current day. It was written by uh, Paul Kahn, who grew up on Oahu's windward side and who now owns a craft brewery in Pennsylvania. He took some time to trade memories and talk about his writing process with the conversations Russell Sabino. What's the first beer you remember drinking? 
Ah, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, so the first beer I remember drinking was Budweiser. You know, Budweiser was sort of around when I was a kid in Hawaii. It was, you know, just part of the environment. And so when I was old enough to drink, and that was back in the day, I was 18 years old, was the legal drinking age. Gives you an idea of how old I am. I remember my, my grandfather used to drink Budweiser a lot, too. I remember as a kid that mm-hmm. there, there was always Bud in the refrigerator. At what point in your life did you come to the conclusion that someone needed to tell Hawaii's story of its history with beer? Right around 2019, I was waiting at a craft brewery for some friends, and they were running late, and my mind was sort of wandering. And I had just finished a book about the, the history of beer in the United States. And nothing in that book touched on Hawaii. Hawaii wasn't included anywhere. I'm like, really? I mean, because, you know, we have Primo. I know there's the the old building in Kaka'ako that's still standing. And then just by complete accident, there was some ad playing on the the radio at at the bar. Of course, at the end, it said something like, offer not valid in Alaska and Hawaii which we always get, and it's always like, oh, really? You know, because you know what's valid? Our, our beer history, and it sort of hit me. You know, I wonder if anybody has written about Hawaii's beer history, because we've got a story to tell. And so I did a little bit more digging. I found there was one smaller book that was written in, like, 2007, and then there's, like, a small journal article in an academic journal, and I used that as kind of the jumping-off point and just began digging around and, and found a publisher. Yeah, we always tend to get left out like that. I, I'm glad you, yeah. you picked it up and you decided to write the book. So what, what was your writing process like? Did you approach it like a novel or like a research paper? And was it important for you to do your research in person? Yes, yes to all of that. So I did, a, you know, I approached it a bit, you know, not, not academic-y because I didn't want to write that book. I wanted to write a book that was more inviting and approachable, that was accessible to both the, the beer drinker and the person who's interested in Hawaii or, you know, Kama'aina who didn't really know much about the beer history or sort of heard a bit about it, kind of like me. Oh, yeah, I kind of remember Primo, but, well, you know, what's the rest of the story? So I have a, a friend who is a historian, and he always says, you know, what's the story? That's really what good history is about, is there's some sort of story. So that's how I approached this. I began to think about what what really are we trying to say about our beer history? And it began as, well, this is really about distance. You know, this is about geography. How did beer get to the most isolated landmass on the planet? It didn't happen by accident. You know, beer doesn't just suddenly happen. People brew it and people drink it. Speaking of Primo, your book is full of tons of interesting historical facts about beer making in Hawaii. Like the aluminum can was an innovation yeah. from Primo Beer in 1958. My favorite little fact was that the first beer brewed in Hawaii wasn't made on land. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about that story? Yeah, so that the first beer that was recorded in Hawaii was actually brewed on a Royal Naval vessel by Captain James Cook. And this was just off the coast of the Big Island of Hawaii. Uh, and really, the the Navy, this was kind of a medical experiment. The Royal Navy was battling scurvy, which is this sort of wasting disease that sailors get on long voyages if they don't get adequate nutrition. So the Royal Navy had this idea that, well, beer, beer can prevent scurvy. So let's try this out. And one of the early experimenters was Captain Cook. So, 
he's like, all right, well, what do I, what do I have here to make some beer? So you sugarcane and hops to make this brew, but apparently it was it was terrible. Not only was it terrible, but it was making the crew like violently ill, which of course is bad bad for their health. So according to one of his lieutenants, the crew sent a letter to Captain Cook saying this is this is kind of terrible and it's hurting our health. And if you if you make us drink this beer, there there could be a problem, which Captain Cook took as a as a threat of mutiny. So he said, Well, all right, um, everybody, let's assemble on the aft deck and, and discuss this. And by discussing it, he meant I'm gonna surround you with twenty heavily armed Marines. And I'm going to say, you're going to drink this beer because I'm going to cut your brandy rations and your food rations until you do it. So, you know, faced with that choice, uh, that's actually really when the first beer was made. It was made out of sugarcane and hops. When you think about all the historical research that you did for the book, what fact surprised you the most? You know, I have to say, other than, you know, finding out that the first beer brewed onshore was actually done by a Spaniard, who was one of King Kamehameha the Great's advisors. That was kind of a surprise. So outside of those two things would be, like, the no-kidding Germans from Germany who were brewers throughout Hawaii's history of beer. So a lot of breweries weren't owned by Germans, Americans mostly, but they brought in Germans, uh, a lot of them from, you know, the mainland where they're working at Pabst or some other brewery on the mainland and, and entice them to come over. Uh, so you get some, you know, great sounding German names, you know, uh, Hartwig Harders or, you know, Walter Glickstein or Flickenstein. And even into the 1980s with, the you know, the first craft brewery on Wailuka, you had Aloysius Klink. Uh, I mean, just some great German names who are no fooling Germans from, from Germany. Walter Glockner would be another one who brewed for a royal brewery that was competing with Primo in the, in the early 30s. I grew up here, and I think most local people born in the 70s or earlier remember Primo being the beer. I grew up in, an, in the era where Primo was being phased out, but I remember the Primo hats, and I remember, yeah, you know, too. looking here, get Primo in my ear. And a lot of things about Primo, but I don't, I don't ever remember seeing it on the shelves. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you write that Primo captured 70% of the Hawaii market by 1969. But today, most locals would agree that Heineken is the local beer of mm -hmm. choice. And I've had this discussion with plenty of family members several times, but I'd like to know why you think that those green bottles are the most popular amongst locals. You know that that's a that's a real phenomenon. We call it the green bottle phenomenon. And how did Heineken do it? Because Heineken, a Dutch beer that is now owned by a huge conglomerate that owns so many other different types of beer. I think they own like Stella Artois and you know Bass and, and all these other kind of popular imported beers. But I, but what I think happened was that Primo, of course, lost market share because they had moved their they're brewing largely to California, and they began to kind of dehydrate things like the wort, W-O-R-T, and then send it back to Hawaii, and it was kind of rehydrated with Hawaiian water, and it kind of tasted awful. Um, and so this is right around the moment when you had a lot of mainland beers, Budweiser, Miller, Olympia. And so you could get those for about the same price, 
But the green bottle phenomenon, you had Heineken kind of like, hey, this is a little bit more, but it's premium. It tastes better. And Heineken has been really good at kind of taking advantage of that. So they, you know, they, they work with a lot of charities, UH Sports, for example. So their their marketing was was better in, in many respects than, than Primo. Thanks so much for your yeah. time, Paul. Yeah, anytime. Thank you. That was author Paul Kahn talking with The Conversation's Russell Subiono. Kahn's book, Hawaii Beer, A History of Brewing in Paradise, was published earlier this year. Grab a book, grab a beer, and celebrate Oktoberfest. That's it for today's show. Tomorrow we talk with UH professor Reese Jones about his new book on immigration. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.